Welcome to Mystics and Molder, a podcast at the intersection of faith and popular culture. I'm Sarah, she, her, hers. And I'm Maeve, she, her, hers. And today we are talking about sacred reading and Jane Eyre with Vanessa Zoltan. Yay! Yay! That's me. <laughs> Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yes. Oh my goodness. We're so Such happy you're here. Such an honor. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Vanessa is the CEO of Not Sorry Productions. She hosts several podcasts, including Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, The Real Question, and Hot and Bothered. She founded Common Ground Pilgrimages, where she leads pilgrimages inspired by literature. Vanessa is also a trained chaplain and the author of the new book, Praying with Jane Eyre. Welcome, Vanessa to Mystics and Mulder. Yay. Thank you for having me. I recently read two of Maeve's favorite books. And Maeve, I feel like I learned a lot about you. The Lisa Kleypas yeah. books. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's very relevant to today because Midnight Angel by Lisa Kleypas is a combination of Jane Eyre and Anastasia get it together and it's one of the most interesting romance novels I've ever read <laughs> definitely oh. one of the most interesting romance novels I've also read <laughs> Maeve told me when she recommended this book to me that if you read this book you are essentially reading my soul oh wow I did not forget about that the whole time I read it I was like I am reading Maeve's soul it's beautiful mm-hmm. Maeve it was a little bit weird mm-hmm. and beautiful Elisa mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Kleypas was wow. going through a real Russian phase at the time yeah. and uh, I mean I heard... don't we all at some point <laughs> I mean I'm still in mine <laughs> uh, and these books supposedly almost ruined her career really because people hated them so much yeah because they were just so out there yeah 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 that you love sorry we can talk about this another time <laughs> that, that is really interesting they are very different in tone than her other books mm-hmm. i enjoyed reading them good I'm I, glad. mostly mostly because i liked reading your soul <laughs> what an honor sarah we That's gotta so get sweet. you to read these oh my gosh yeah now i feel like i need to you do you do <laughs> Okay, I'm going to add that to my uh, library request <laughs> list. <laughs> okay, we're going to start with kind of like a big, broad question um, for you. So you've been writing about Jane Eyre since your MDiv thesis. I'm reading it for years before that. Um, you constructed your book, Praying with Jane Eyre, as sets of sermons that weave your family and personal narratives with literature. Um, and you're making a lot of real life meaning making out of this text. Um, so why do you think that we as people, you know, in the human experience or you personally are called to literature? Oh, God. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think at its core, literature makes us feel not alone and it can make us feel accompanied across things that um, make us feel vulnerable. So you won't necessarily share the depths of your grief, you know, with a friend, right? You can't quite articulate it to yourself or it's embarrassing how much you're grieving for something, even though it's been three years or, you know, whatever it is, you don't want to bum your friend out, but you read, you know, a Russian novel about (laughs) the grief of the end of a relationship. And you read about Natasha's, I'm going to not 
touch anything so that the mic doesn't pick it up. You know, you read about, you know, Natasha's grief after she ruins her relationship with Andre and, you know, you're like, oh, Tolstoy 170 years ago knew that same grief that I felt when my crush didn't reciprocate, you know, their feelings for me. And so you can feel seen. And I think that there is something so beautiful about a friend or a family member seeing you, but there is a different kind of beauty that I would say is just as profound when someone who you don't know and is really from a different time and space from you understanding you. You're like, oh, this is a human experience. I am not alone. Tolstoy, who was born a prince in Russia in, I don't know, probably around 1800, like he gets me and that means I'm not alone. And I think that that is why we are called to meaning making with literature is we're, we're lonely, right? The human condition is a lonely one, even though we are always around other people. Mm-hmm. Vanessa, are you a It fan? reminds me. Oh, go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, it reminds me of um, like that phrase that when we, when we read books, they read us back, but we're also reading other people at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> not just yeah. ourselves but you know other people who've read that book and the author and and all of the books fandoms <laughs> absolutely I mean there are I'm sure all of your listeners know right that there are studies that people who read are more empathetic and I, I think that there's a rate of diminishing returns I don't think like English professors are the most empathetic people <laughs> in the world but I do think that it teaches you that someone can behave in one way and think in a, in a non-intuitively matched way to the way that they appear to behave, right? And so it makes you curious about your fellow humans and makes you realize that you really don't know another person's interiority. And I think that, um, you know, Virginia Woolf said that imagination is an anti-war effort, That um, that if you really imagined what it was like, you know, she was writing after World War One and with World War One really heavy on her mind and her heart. And so she, you know, was saying that if you could actually imagine what a German soldier was thinking and feeling and who it was that he had left behind back in Germany, like there was no way that you could shoot him. And so that war was just a lack of imagination and that she really saw reading and imagination as an anti-war effort. And I, I think it is an insufficient anti-war effort mm-hmm. on its own, right? Necessary, but not sufficient. Um, but I do think it's it's at least part of that anti-war effort, reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Going back to War and Peace, um, Vanessa, are you, <laughs> <laughs> always ready to talk about it. Are you a fan of the uh, musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 by Dave Malloy? I was gonna ask that too. Ah! Are you ready for a major brag? Oh my gosh. Nick Choksi, Monic Choksi, a friend of mine from college and a man who I had a huge crush on in college, um, was part of the founding cast <gasps> of Natasha and Pierre. And so he played, um, he played the asshole. <gasps> Anatole? Oh. No, not Anatole, not the super handsome, like the violent one. Anyway, my friend in my friend in like college crush, Monic Choksi, played one of the original roles and was on. He toured with it while it was in mm-hmm. formation, 
and was in it on Broadway. So <gasps> I have had the benefit of seeing it many times and swooning over my friend Nick. And I would text him when I was there and, you know, it was like very interactive. And so he would come and dance on whatever table <laughs> I was near when he was there. So yes, I know the show well and I love it. And one of the things I love most about that show is that it has one of my favorite things, which is a love song from a friend to a friend. Mm-hmm. Sonia alone. Yes. Right? Oh, that so song beautiful. breaks my heart mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. Right? And like, love I feel it. like Wicked has one of those songs, mm-hmm. right? For Good is mm-hmm. a like love song between two friends. And I just think, you know, female friendship is absolutely one of the strongest powers in the world. And so there need to be more songs honoring it. And Sonia alone, that is just a beautiful love song about a friend. Yes. Mm. We do not get enough like platonic intimacy ballads. <laughs> no, we really don't. <laughs> and there is, so my best friend Kim calls me Ness. And there is a Ben Harper song where he says, you put the happy in my Ness. Mm. And it's a breakup song, but it's like our song because mm. It's like, right? Like women just like want to find ways to honor their love for each other. And so I feel like we found a breakup song and we were like, this is our song. Um, the Walk That's Away so by Ben Harper from the <laughs> 90s. It's a great song, everyone. <laughs> just a quick little, there's also a book <laughs> um, by the host of the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. And it's about their mm-hmm. platonic friendship as women. And how that's stronger yeah. than like romantic relationships are just as strong in their life. And it's so true. And it's so needed. Like we need to talk about it more. Absolutely. One of my goals is to one day write a f- piece of fiction, a romance novel that is about the platonic love between oh. two women. Oh. And like have it follow all of the tropes of a romance novel, right? Like <gasps> you or like enemies to lovers, something. But have it really be platonic. Have there be like a hot scene of them just like loving each other without it being sexual. Mm. Like I want, I think that this needs to be its own genre and just like best friends falling in love, facing a challenge, maybe having a fight, but like realizing that they are better together. It will happen one day. I will write, that will be my fourth book. That's my plan. Mm. Oh, Vanessa. <laughs> my first book <laughs> just came out a week ago, but yeah, it'll totally happen. I love that. I would read the fuck out of that book. (laughs) Thank you. It will be written. (sighs) Okay. Well, getting back to the book that you did just release a week ago or so. um, In Praying with Jane Eyre, you call sacredness an act and sacred reading a prayer, which is very lovely. How do you define sacred text and sacred reading? And how do you practice sacredness? Yeah. So I I think that there are a lot of different definitions that are valid for sacredness, right? Um, One of the definitions that I like is that it is treating something complicated. Um, So like, and to measure complicated, it has to be that two people would look at it and would be able to see different things in it. So it is looking at something complicated and engaging with it in a way that will make you better at loving. And if you are doing that, then the text that you are looking at is sacred and you are engaging in prayer. So you are asking something that is other than you to make you better at loving. 
And I think that that, right, like that is a relationship with the sacred thing. And I think that that is what prayer is. I don't think that those are the only things that, you know, prayer sacredness are, but that, that is the easiest way for me to engage with sacredness and prayer. Have you practiced sacred reading as a chaplain with patients or clients, students or students? What about uh, on those, on your pilgrimages? Yeah. So we, I I started doing it this, I was an assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard and an undergrad came to me and she had recently been dumped and she was like, I'm not religious, but I'm very sad. And I wish that I could go to like a minister. And so I didn't really know what to do with her. Right. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to do this thing. And so I was like, look, tell me to read something and whatever you want. I will read it too. And then we can discuss it. And at Harvard, the way that they did therapy was that they did cognitive behavioral therapy for eight weeks. And that was like what you were allowed to do as a student before you needed a prescription. So it was like, great, that's what I'll do. That's the model I'll follow, not CBT, but I will do chaplaincy with you with a book or essay or whatever of your choice for eight weeks. And she had me read David Foster Wallace's Kenyan college speech And we just worked on it for weeks and weeks. And I was like, okay, what about this speaks to you? Why? And like, just ask questions and would reflect back to her the things that she was saying that the patterns that I was noticing and, you know, just do that. And that is still to a large extent how I engage in chaplaincy. So I, as a um, chaplain intern at a hospital, I would ask people what it was they loved. And I talked about baseball with people and I talked about modern art with people and all sorts of really fun topics, reality TV show. I, the world cup was on the summer that I did my clinical pastoral education. And so talked about soccer a lot um, and did some Bible talk, but mostly really secular things. And on the pilgrimages um, that I lead, yeah, we are treating, you know, one text at a time sacred. So our first one was to the lighthouse. And it's amazing when a community shares a text, there become these shorthands that you can use to express complicated things together. And then at the end of every trip, um, I, or depending on the trip, someone on the trip offers chaplaincy and we use those terms that we've come up with together as part of that conversation. And I'm currently this year, um, because of COVID, I'm not traveling. And so my schedule is much more available. And so I've been meeting once a month with um, 20 people who signed up to do chaplaincy with me. And they were each allowed to pick either, (laughs) just any of the books I know really well. So it was essentially Jane Eyre or any of the Harry Potter books that I was (laughs) like, I can't read 20 different books, really engaged. Um, And yeah, we've been like really using the text to reflect on their lives. And I would say the the woman who's most skeptical who signed up, she's so funny. Every time we meet, she's like, Vanessa, the text is just like, it's talking to me. And I'm like, I know. And she keeps thinking that it's a compliment to me. And I'm like, people have been doing this for literal thousands of years. I have invented nothing (laughs) But it's just amazing as a spiritual tool, what asking a text, right, to, to respond, not saying, you know, in a, in a 
profane, simple way, like, should I break up with this person? Right. But asking a text, like, what is love? What is friendship? What, you know, the texts will answer. I don't remember what your question was, but I hope I answered it. <laughs> you did. You did. That was, that was really beautiful that I'm just like, I'm kind of just soaking it all in. <laughs> Maeve and I co-run a class that is not chaplaincy based, but it, I mean, it's a Bible study class. Only we're making our way through the Harry Potter books. I mean, Maeve can speak to this, right? I, I, they have formed a real community and a real shorthand for things. And, you know, I, I, I do think it sustained a lot of people through the pandemic, this mm-hmm. class that we were leading together. Mm-hmm. There's something you said that resonated with me with that class and then also with chaplaincy. It's just so amazing the moment when someone feels like they've connected with your story or um, like a shared interest. And so I love to see people talk passionately about the things that they love. And it's just like love feeding love because then I can add, oh, like, like we did earlier, like, oh, what about this book about friendship? And oh yeah, Natasha. And there's just something so inviting. And so I just feel like my heart's coming out of my chest, like (laughs) just so full of love. So (laughs) talking about um, the texts that you work with professionally in your career, um, we thought we would kind of dive into those and their genres and uh, maybe examine them as problematic faves as well. Um, so one of our first questions is in Harry Potter and the sacred text, you focus on fantasy and in hot and bothered, you focus on romance novels and this season you're reading through Jane Eyre, which is great. Um, so we wanted to ask, how are these two genres and their many subgenres useful bases for sacred reading, fantasy and romance? I have a great answer for fantasy. <laughs> the answer is quoting our producer, Ariana Nettleman. Her question with fantasy is always, what is the magic? And Right. Like obviously the magic is literally that you can fly or the magic is literally that you can back in, you know, Alohomora, um, Akio, right. That you can just like do these things, call things to you, light things up. But I, her question of what is the magic, right. It's that you can create safety, that you can travel fast and get to people you love quickly that you can do a shield charm, that you can protect the people you love, right? And I think that that is the beauty of fantasy is that is tracing what it is that we value by wondering what the magic is. Having a really strong connection to an animal, right? Like who will let you get on their back and fly. Um, Liberty, right? Like these are always what that magic actually is. And I think by making them so big, we can see more clearly what our values are. Something that in this current season of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I'm co-hosting with Maeve, a a professor of both of ours, Matt Potts, who he's always really interested in safety. I think Hogwarts is like a very scary, dangerous place. And I'm concerned about that a lot. And Matt is always like, but we don't know the scale of the magic. The risk assessment has to be so different in a magical world, right? It's, you can heal a broken arm with Skelegro. Like that's a really different world in which you have to be in a cast for six weeks. So I think that that's what fantasy is as a genre, you know, or one of the things. Um, the thing that I love most about romance novels is the safety of the HEA, the happily ever after, or the happily for now. And 
right? Like if you know it's going to end well, you can go to darker places because there is just this like cocoon of it'll be fine. I just finished watching really one of my all-time favorite TV shows, Veronica Mars. And I did not know how the series ended. And I won't spoil it for people who haven't finished, but I was so upset for days. Like I, this was like a week ago now that I finished it and I am still upset. And I understand that it's a noir genre, right? Like I understand that I like should have understood the genre. I understand that I should have maybe seen the genre clues for it. However, I would say that it as a text was usurping certain genre norms of noir. So I shouldn't have necessarily seen it coming. Anyway, it felt like a real betrayal. Mm -hmm. And with, and sometimes it's lovely to be outside of a genre and to really not know what's going to happen. Right. Cause like that is emblematic of life and that is a beautiful form of art, but romance, right? I, you can really work yourself up into moments of despair and fear with the safety in mind that everything will end up okay. I was reading one romance where the stakes felt so high. My friend Bridget recommended it to me and I got so scared in the middle that they were going to die because it was so well-written that I wrote to Bridget. I texted her and I was like, are you sure this is a romance novel? And she was like, yes. And I was like, so neither of them die and they both end up okay. And she was like, yes. And like, I psyched myself out so hard that I was like, maybe this isn't even a romance. But because of that, I was able to like really feel the fear of this couple. Whereas I feel like if I don't know where a book is going and I'm really scared, I check out a little bit because I'm really scared. So I, I also think that the other thing that romance novels do for women in general and for non-binary folk is that we are trained to not expect a lot from our love lives, right? We are ex- we are trained to believe that love is a scarce resource and that we should sort of settle. And of course, right, romantic relationships involve compromise, but not settling. And I love that romance novels are like, here, this is what you should expect. Radical consent. When they mess up, they're going to up apologize and they're going to apologize well they're going to figure out what your love language is and like do the things for you and I think we like not men need to train ourselves to expect that and then demand it because patriarchy benefits from us not believing that and romance novels can train us to have these high standards everyone read romance all the time (laughs) yeah men read them as guidebooks for how to treat people There's always this like mystery, like what do women want? I'm like, there is a whole genre. There are millions of words. Mm -hmm. Read them. Mm -hmm. That is what we want. That reminds me. I'll just keep going. (laughs) I was just going to say, I think so often that it's said to women like, oh, well, like you can't expect Disney romance, you know? And it's like, um, yes, we can, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like. You just got to put in the effort. Like, we're over here putting in the effort. You got to, like, reciprocate, you know? Then we can have our Disney romance. It's like, we're not going to let... That's essentially what you were saying. You know, we're not going to let our standards fall. (laughs) Right. I mean, they say... Patriarchy says that to us as it expects us to be Disney princesses, right? Mm. Like, you can't expect princes, but please have your waistline be very small 
and also be a manic pixie dream girl, right? Like, <laughs> and speak and to like, animals and right, do all talk the things. to animals, be like very like sweet and have a talent and but like non-threatening, right? So yeah, of course we can expect those things. And I don't know, right? Like in its specificity, right? Like again, you're not gonna find Prince Eric, thank God, because he seems boring. Like, <laughs> like you are going to be able to find someone who treats you well and who you love and who inspires you and yeah, and who when they don't treat you in a way that you want to be treated will try to learn and do better, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think anything that teaches women to have higher expectations is a good thing. Mm-hmm. For both of these genres, Um, it's like imagining, at least this is how I think of it, imagining a more just world, um, challenging social systems, and also raising expectations and seeing yourself in the middle of like, you know, conflict, at least when I'm reading, I would see that. And then I think to myself, well, things should be better. Things should be more just. And if someone could create this through their imagination, it's possible to create this in our everyday world. Yeah. That's the other thing about imagination, right? It's, I mean, Ursula K. Le Guin has a great quote about it that I always have to paraphrase because I, I cannot even conjure her eloquence through memorization. But essentially, like nobody imagines prison, right? Radical imagination. Fantasy is always about, nobody ever escapes to prison. They escape to mm. somewhere better. They escape to freedom, right? So like, what the heck is wrong with escapist, mm. you know? with escapist fiction. She was talking about science fiction, of course, but I think that that works across genre. And yeah, like we need imagination. We're not doing this whole thing called life right yet, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't know. I look at our carceral system and I'm I'm like, this is a real lack of imagination. Locking Mm -hmm. people up because of what color they are. That seems like not very imaginative Mm -hmm. and just a horrible act of violence. So yeah, let's keep not, I'm not saying that reading romance novels is going to end the carceral system. We need to be doing other things as well. But I think we constantly need to be exercising our imaginations. Mm-hmm. Read yeah. romance. It'll end <laughs> racism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing, do you remember that? I can't remember which Kardashian it was, but like when she had the Pepsi and she <laughs> was standing uh, Kendall exactly. Jenner. I think it was a Jenner. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Capital <laughs> Pepsi is going to end racism. Police brutality. Exactly. Just like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. That is not what I'm saying. But I am saying that I don't know, right? Like, I think reading romance is a more effective tool of entertainment toward radical justice than football. And one of them is taken much more seriously than the other. And I think that those, ex- I think that that respect level should probably be inverted. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Football yeah, fans so- come at me. They already do. <laughs> no football fans listen to this podcast. I can guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> Not even one. <laughs> so I think Sarah and I are split on Veronica Mars a little bit. Vanessa, what are your thoughts about Logan Eccles? Do we do spoilers on this podcast? I'm sorry to say that I don't know. We, we can say. I think just like in general. Yeah. As a okay. general vibe. Not about him. season four. I love him. Logan Eccles. I love Logan. <sighs> First of all, clapping. whatever. He's hot. He's hot. 
Second of all, he is someone who's literally always trying to be better for Veronica. He loves her so hard and is willing to make sacrifices in order to love her well mm-hmm. and leaves her when she says things. I love Logan. He like goes to therapy. He's mm-hmm. like trying to become a better and better person. I don't love that he joins the military, but mm-hmm. he's nice to Veronica's dad. He becomes friends with Wallace. Mm-hmm. Like he really, I can defend Logan <laughs> forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Derek, you look so disappointed. <laughs> no, who do you I like, just... Duncan? No, I don't like <laughs> any Duncan! of them. They're all awful. <laughs> but no, no, no. Oh, you Duncan. love Wallace, right? Oh, oh, okay. Yes, that's true. Wallace okay. is like the one saving character. <laughs> and you don't like Piz either. I haven't watched it. Who's Piz? Yeah, uh, her college three. boyfriend, season three. I don't know if I ever made. I think honestly, I think I made it like three fourths of the way. The last episode I remember, and maybe I got past. I did watch the movie too. Anyway, the last episode I remember is when the school bus school bus fell off the mm-hmm. side of the cliff. I think that's, that's like season two. Season two. Season two. You're See, a quitter, Sarah. I know. Well, it's because all the characters are so mean and like duplicitous. And I'm just like, y'all, just go take a nap or mm-hmm. something. Just calm <laughs> down. Just, I can take a nap. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Sorry, Sarah. You're it's wrong. Okay. Also, it's Piz like, is in fine. the movie. I'm one of the people who crowdfunded to have the movie made. <gasps> I have a Neptune High 10-year reunion t-shirt that I got as a crowdfunder. <gasps> of the film i like i went to like the opening bus the boston opening night with my friend alex because we were both like crowdfund we were both kickstarter supporters of the film your welcome world i gave 10 bucks to this vision (laughs) (laughs) in whatever year that was in 2010 wow i know i'm basically a producer they should have put your name on the credits. <laughs> um, I I would demand it more, but I'm mad at Rod. But I'm mad at Rob Thomas for the way that he ended the series. So I don't want my name next to his. Do you guys know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the basketball player, ended up writing some of season four because he was a big <laughs> Veronica Mars fan? What that is one of my favorite pieces Wait. of trivia? What hasn't Kareem Abdul-Jabbar done? Because he's like been on Jeopardy. <laughs> oh, he has. Like- I think so. I'm pretty sure. What's also amazing about him is he played basketball until he was 40. Like he retired. I think he was literally 40 years old when he retired. So it's not like he's been able to do all this because he stopped playing basketball at 29. I remember his farewell tour. I grew up in LA, so I'm a Laker fan. I also grew up in LA. So his son, Amir, went to my high school and was in my (gasps) brother's grade. Kareem would come to Amir's basketball games and he was so tall that he would sit on one bleacher and his legs would be like three rows down oh my goodness um well we've kind of touched on it already about the way that you uh intentionally create inclusive communities around texts um like you've created sorry i strive to you know the more you expand your mind the more you realize that you're always excluding people unfortunately Right. I mean, like I can be really a jerk about it and be like, it's in English, right? Like mm. there's like, you just, you know, no community is truly inclusive, sadly, mm. but 
Yes, we try to. <laughs> we try to. Um, after the really awful transphobic and um, misinformation just debacle that uh, J.K. Rowling did, you've been mindful of reading Harry Potter as a, as a sacred practice mm-hmm. uh, in response to that. And in protest of that, um, you've spoken about evangelism, imperialism, and racism within Jane Eyre, even as it serves as a warning against patriarchy. So how do you confront problematic texts that can still call us to make meaning from them? I So obviously this is like a scale, but we are all problematic right like I'm a white cis lady um who always has to like question how much the world still needs my voice Mm -hmm. right like and I feel like I have things to say and yet I'm like should I still be the person saying them right like and that is much less problematic than a hateful person right like Rush Limbaugh or Tucker Mm -hmm. Carlson right like so I, I don't think everything is, I'm, I'm not trying to say everything's problematic. So let's throw up our hands and just like whatever we like. But I do think that there's, there's nothing that's pure, right? That is part of why we have romance and fantasy is to imagine that kind of purity, but nothing is pure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we love what we love. And to me, the qualifier on whether we treat it as sacred is if it gets you better at loving. And I would argue that Tucker Carlson is all about getting people better at hating. He's trying to get people to be afraid of each other. And so that is not a text that I'm interested in treating as sacred. I think that JK Rowling's texts happen to undermine the message that she is preaching around transphobia. Her books are about how radical acts of love can save people, even people you don't agree with or dislike. And so the fact that she's like running around preaching this turf misinformation is just, I'm like, read your own books. But also the books are problematic. They are incredibly fat phobic. The racial dynamic of things is incredibly confusing at best and just like outright racist at worst. Um, there is Orientalism with, you know, with Quirrell's turban, there, right? Like, but the fans have done amazing work with this text and you can't erase that fact, right? Black Hermione is one of the most exciting radical acts of fandom that I know of. And, you know, JK Rowling sort of tries to take credit of it for it and be like, I never said she was white. First of all, that's not even true. In the text, she does at one point say like, her pink cheeks return to white or something along those lines. Also, her it's true that she never said it was that Hermione was white, but not in an imaginative, like loving way, in a she believes that white is the default race way. She points out when people are people of color and often in really gross ways, like by naming them Cho Chang. But she she assumes that the default skin color is white. So to give herself credit of like, yeah, I totally always meant that Hermione was black is nonsense, but fans did that. And so I, I think that, you know, we all have texts that we can no longer listen to or deal with. I was just at a wedding of a very loving couple. They are, you know, a multiracial couple and they're both doctors and they're just incredibly radically loving people. And Michael Jackson was on their playlist 
And I grew up loving Michael Jackson and I cannot listen to him anymore, but they can. And I think that we all have ways that we can do this. Our podcast, Harry Potter and the Secret Text, really goes far out of our way to not financially contribute to J.K. Rowling at all. We once went to the Warner Brother Parks. We will never do that again. We used to host movie nights. Now when we host movie nights, we don't watch the Harry Potter movies. We encourage people to buy fan-made art, not J.K. Rowling-sponsored art. So we're trying to engage with the text and the fandom. We, we really encourage buying used books. Um, so, you know, we're really trying to thread a needle. But the truth is, is that when her transphobic screed came out, we asked our community if they wanted us to keep going. We happened to be wrapping up a season at the same time. And so there, it was an easy thing for us to ask. It wasn't like we were going to be interrupting out of the middle of nowhere anyway, but we did a survey and about 68% of our community said, please keep going. This podcast is how I can keep loving Harry Potter. And Harry Potter is a really big part of my identity, right? And these are people who've gotten Harry Potter tattoos and had Harry Potter themed weddings and they want something. And for a lot of people, it's how they felt comfortable coming out as trans, right? Like it, people have really read queerness into the text. The fantastic podcast, The Gaily Prophet reads Hagrid as a trans man, right? Like people have understood themselves through these books. Um, Jackson Bird wrote the book Sorted about his, you know, coming out as trans um, in conversation with Harry Potter. So our cis listeners we're constantly writing into us and be like, please, this is what I think, but please listen to the trans and non-binary listeners more. But it turns out that we didn't even need to do that because it was sort of 68% of our listeners asked for us to keep going, whether or not they self-identified as trans or non-binary. It was consistent across, um, across genders, which was, so there was sort of this mandate that we keep going, but I would say that you would just like have to read everything critically. Um, nothing gets a pass, right? Like I think that on a private level, things can get a pass every once in a while where you're just like, I just want to read this for fun by myself. And like, I want to check out for a second. And I think that that is a completely acceptable form of self-care. You know, so many people in this country spend their whole lives taking care of the elderly, taking care of their children, right? Like, just constantly thinking about other people. And so I think it is fine to like watch The Bachelor and just like not think about anything, any of the complicated, you know, nature of that. But as soon as you're treating something as sacred, right? Like critical reading has to be part of that. And so, yeah, as long as you're really willing to not look away from the difficult parts, I, I think that it's very few texts that we should throw away in their entirety, especially if they, if they inspire you. If, if one of the rules that, Stephanie Paulsell, one of my mentors, has about um, sacred texts is that they have to be generative. They have to make you want to write about them, right? If if there's fan fiction, right, then it's it, it's capable of being a sacred text. And so there's certain texts that don't make me feel like I want to generate anything out of them, right? Like Pamela. It's a great work of fiction. It makes me sad. I do not want to imagine other scenarios with it. I just want to move on. So that is not a great sacred text for me, but if it makes you want to imagine, right, you know it by its fruits to quote the Bible. 
I'm really glad that you talked about fan communities and fan fiction in particular, um, because, you know, it seems to me that's a way that folks can like rectify the text or point out the problematic parts or be able to see themselves even more within it. Like, I believe that Black Hermione came from fanfic and now oh, yeah. like, it's influenced so much of pop culture and representations of Hermione. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is essentially canon now. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. into it. I do grieve Jewish Hermione mm-hmm. as a Jew who read Hermione is Jewish. You know, bushy hair, know-it-all, doctor parents. I was like, hey, girl. <laughs> but I'm happy to give her up for Black Hermione. She's Black Jewish Black Hermione. Jewish Hermione. Yeah. She's Black Jewish Hermione. I know. No, no, no. Totally. I'm very excited about Black Jewish Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> we all are. We all are. <laughs> So I thought we would get really into your new book, Praying with Jane Eyre, and talk about it um, in particular and talk a little bit more about Jane Eyre as a text. So I wanted to know why Jane Eyre for you, Vanessa, and why do you keep coming back to it over and over again? And, you know, 150 plus years from its publication, what meaning does it have for us now? I mean, I keep coming back to it because it's the best book ever. <laughs> of it's course. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> go read it. I know that there are other best books ever also, but it's so freaking good. It's so weird. And it's like <laughs> messy and dark and like kinky. It's just like so good. I love it, right? Because I was given it by my mom at 14 and was told I would love it. And I'm like no better than, you know, how I was raised. And but 150 years later, like we should read it because it is sadly still relevant, right? Like it is about somebody who is ignored and resists and resists until she gets her humanity. And it is just a, an upsetting uphill battle. Our current season of Hot and Bothered on air, we're looking closely at Jane Eyre, but I'm doing it with a journalist, Lauren Sandler, who has spent her entire career studying women in poverty. Her most recent book, This Is All I Got, follows the year in a life of a homeless mother. And so we are very much reading this, like these problems that were written about 150 years ago, we have made marginal at best improvements. And I think it's important to pay attention to that because it's just going to keep happening if we don't try on another 150 years is going to go by and women are still not going to be taken seriously within systems. And, you know, there is a teacher, Miss Scatcherd, and there's Helen and they are on the other side of the thinnest divide, right? Like they are both poor and nobody cares about them. And it's essentially five years between them and that's it. And that is true for women who work in welfare offices and homeless women who need welfare assistance, right? Like there's the thinnest divide. There's like, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year between them. And I like these problems just have not gone away at all. And so I think it's actually really important to keep reading Jane Eyre. And I just think other books need to be part of the canon too. But um, this one needs to stay in the canon. Also, it's sexy. Ooh. <laughs> also Bertha, but I don't want to spoil that for people. Should we do the the little game and then? Yes, <laughs> let's do the game. Yes, yes. We okay, we game. have we have a game <laughs> about our problematic fave, Mr. Rochester. <laughs> um, so we can just do like gut instinct, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gut reaction. Okay, wanna, yeah. Would yeah. Mr. Rochester 
go to Starbucks and just order a grande black coffee, no milk and sugar. No, he's like a latte guy. He's sitting there with his dog and reading the paper and mm -mm. like a flat white. Yeah. 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 He's like sitting outside scratching pilot's head Mm. and reading the paper and enjoying his flat white. I can see that. He likes, he likes the finer things. He likes enjoying things. Mm. I I feel like if you were like at a special Turkish coffee house Mm. where the black coffee is like notoriously excellent, then yes, he would. But at Starbucks where like the coffee all kind of tastes burnt, I think he'd be like, no, no, I'm going to enjoy this afternoon. And bring pilot. Would Fairfax Rochester think cereal is a type of soup? Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. <laughs> he would. He'd hate it, too. <laughs> he, he would definitely complain to John, the servant. Be like, what is this? I don't. He does not strike me as a man who loves change. Although he falls in love with a young woman and is, like, willing to have his mind changed by her. But no, I think that cereal would be a bridge too far for him. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Do you think that he would watch the Great British Bake Off? Yes, and he would get very attached. He would. What was what was her name? Stacy, the woman who should have won, but really melted down in the last episode. He would have been very upset. I think he would pick a favorite and be a hundred percent sure that he was correct. I think he would hate Paul Hollywood. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh You'd yeah. You'd be like the Hollywood handshake. Who cares? <laughs> uh, would Fairfax Rochester wear a kilt? No. <laughs> British superiority to Scotland. We had he to ask never. just because we're Presbyterians. We just yeah. had to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He and Jamie Fraser would maybe be friends, <laughs> right? Like, even though Jamie Fraser, I think, would be like 60 years older than Rochester. But, um, I think he would be like friends with Scotsman, but he is mm. British. Mm. Like yeah. he is English British to his bones. So no, no kilt for him. Mm. Okay. Should we do one last one? Let's do one more. Okay. Yeah. Would Mr. Rochester read Jane Eyre? If Jane Eyre, the character recommended it to him. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I think, yes, I think he'll, do anything she wants he loves her so much so he was willing to like be celibate with her right he's like run away with me we can live like brother and sister he would do anything she wanted poor man (laughs) poor horrible man (laughs) 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 well before you leave we would love to hear about what you're reading, what is making you happy these days. So I am listening my way through the Julianne Long series, Penny Royal Green. I'm in love with the series. There are 11 books. All of them are excellent. My favorite is It Started with a Scandal, which is a housekeeper prince story. And yet is, I know, I know, Maeve, I know you're into that. (laughs) And with just like so much consent and love and it's just so good. I only read it like three months ago and I already want to reread it. And I am just like only letting myself listen to one every couple of weeks because I want the series to last forever. But I am reading with my eyes. I am rereading Transcendent Kingdom by Yag Yasi. It is 
mind-blowingly good. And I couldn't put it down the first time just for the plot. So I just like zipped through and I was like, I got to reread this slowly. So that is what I'm reading with my eyes. And I would like everyone to listen and read with me so we can discuss Penny Royal Green and Transcendent <laughs> Kingdom. So good. Yes. And Maeve, how is um, how's my favorite book going? It's very good. I Capture the Castle Are by Dodie Smith. I am. I I, <gasps> have you read that, Sarah? I have. <gasps> yeah. We got to talk about Sarah? it. Well, I've read it, but I... It was a long time ago. I don't. I remember it being sad. Is it sad? No, you're wrong. <laughs> it's I great. Rem- yes. Well, <laughs> Sarah, I've known you for an hour. You're wrong. <laughs> That's how I talk to people. <laughs> don't That's tell me that for it's me. sad. She won't finish reading it. It's no, mostly makes me happy. Want to read it if it's sad. Okay, there's some sad, but. It's so good. It's so good. Everyone read I Capture the Castle. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Okay. Thank you yes, both thank so you much. This was so with fun. Us. Thank you. And you can find copies of Praying with Jane Eyre wherever books are sold. And you can listen to Vanessa's podcast wherever podcasts are found. You can also check out Vanessa's work at NotSorryWorks.com. Thanks again, Vanessa Zoltan. You can find Mystics and Molder on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, and also at our website, mysticsandmolder.com. And many thanks to Motion for our music. (gasps) 